you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Joining us from Huntington Hospital in Pasadena, Chief of Infectious Disease and Prevention at Huntington, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner, very good Tuesday to you. It's nice to be with you, Larry. Let's start, first of all, with what we continue to see in the decline of the presence of the Omicron variant of COVID-19, hospitalizations dropping, case uh, positivity rates from testing dropping. This all appears to be a good thing. Indeed, it does. We're dropping our census, our inpatient census. The number of visits to the emergency room are declining. There still is some dribs and drabs of virus uh, circulating out there, so we want people to be cautious uh, but it is looking optimistic. All right. Uh, well, and and let's talk about what this this means if we can project out a few weeks here. Are we going to be seeing, pending another uh, strain on the horizon, extremely low COVID uh, with us? It's really hard to tell, Larry. I think one thing we've really learned over these last two years is it's very hard to predict what this virus is going to do. I think it would be highly unlikely that we don't have some other variant emerge. Uh, hopefully it will not, <clears throat> excuse me, not be as uh, nasty and difficult as the last have been. Um, and remember now that we have a kind of a layer of protection over most of the country now. People are either have had uh, COVID themselves uh, or are vaccinated, have had, are vaccinated and have had COVID. We have that experience now too. Um, and uh, uh, And so I think that we have this kind of, experience now immunologically, if you will, uh, in each of us and in our communities. And so that will still afford us a great deal of protection. We know that vaccines do wane after a while, and so we may be looking at another booster in the fall, perhaps. Uh, But we also know that the memory part of the immune system still stays very intact. And there's some very nice papers recently that have shown that our T and B cells, which are kind of the police force of the immune system, seem to remember this virus. Uh, We think that that will probably cover most of the possible variants, but we never know with SARS-CoV-2. It certainly is a very difficult uh, pathogen. There's some concern uh, about this BA2 variant that's circulating in Europe. And we know that extenuating circumstances, for example, a war, uh, can increase the movement of large populations of people, and that can actually exacerbate pandemics uh, when that happens. We certainly saw that uh, during the First World War with the 1918 flu pandemic. So, um, I think that those are things that are hard to predict and hard to control. But the good news is, is that 
most of the world now has some experience with this virus immunologically, and that may serve to protect us and keep things at least manageable. Dr. Schreiner, uh, I wonder, too, as as you know, we look at BA2 or other variants to come, given that so many people got Omicron, uh, many of them perhaps unknowingly if they were asymptomatic, that going to make it difficult then for BA2 or a variant to come to to latch on, particularly um, serious illness, because if if you've got the um, memory B cells and the T cells providing that sort of uh, line of defense against more serious illness, is, is that then make it harder for new variants to transmit? Well, I think it's important to understand that the emergence of variants is not linear. In other words, alpha didn't give rise to beta, beta didn't give rise to delta, delta didn't give rise to omicron. What the virus does, the COVID virus does, is it picks mutations from different parts of its family tree and then kind of creates new variants. And, of course, that's under the pressure of trying to evade the vaccines, trying to evade people who've already had COVID and have immunity, uh, and just trying to find non-immune hosts. And so it is entirely possible that, yes, as you said, uh, the experience with Omicron and the fact that so many people may have even been exposed to it and didn't know it, Um, and it laid down an additional layer of protection, that that would prevent uh, the emergence of a really nasty variant. But then fortunately, because the virus can pick and choose little bits and pieces from different types of family tree members, uh, we could come up with an entirely new variant that evades the vaccines quite effectively. And that's something why genomic testing and genomic sequencing is so important to keep an eye on whether we're starting to see the emergence of such a variant. And does that wastewater monitoring also provide an early heads up? It can. It's a, it's a very uh, gross, I don't mean that in a descriptive sense. <laughs> I knew what you meant. <laughs> material to look at. Um, it's not very, uh, and it's not very um, uh, sort of uh, selective in terms of it picks up proteins that are associated with SARS-CoV-2. So it's hard to know, is that old disease? Is that disease coming from animal reservoirs, which we do now know that there are some animal reservoirs for this disease? Uh, and so it's a it's a kind of a crude way of measuring things at the beginning. This is where contact tracing and testing in the community periodically is going to be important. It's important for public health departments to remain uh, well fi- financed so they can be vigilant about monitoring that. And we want to get on this thing early so that we can start implementing, um, you know, perhaps an uptick in our mitigation techni- techniques, especially as we begin to pull back on some of those things. We have to be aware that, that we're going to have to monitor the emergence of another variant and may say, oh, oh it's time to mask up again uh, to protect ourselves. And the hospitals, of course, can also be a place uh, where they can we can monitor that as well. Speaking of masking, I've, I've been hearing from a lot of people that um, uh, that anything short of a KN95 or N95 is not really worth the time in wearing, not particularly effective. And I had thought that surgical masks, though obviously they don't fit as tight as an N95 or KN95, still provide some degree of protection, particularly if you're careful about bending the metal nose bar around your nose and checking for leaks. Are the surgical masks effective at all? Larry, I think, you know, masking is uh, very much dependent on how much virus is circulating in the community and, uh, and what your risk is. And so if you're indoors uh, with people, lots of people that you don't know, you don't know what their, their vaccination status is, you don't know whether they've had COVID in the past, um, and you're wearing a surgical mask, your risk is a little higher. You certainly can acquire disease. But when the level of Omicron is, not, is lower in the community, 
then the likelihood that you're going to bump into somebody with it is less. Uh, we didn't want to use surgical masks during that massive, massive peak that we had earlier last month uh, because there was just so much virus in the community. It was very a high, very high likelihood that you were going to encounter someone who had COVID or who was carrying COVID. And so uh, surgical masks are three, especially three-ply surgical masks, are quite effective, and they certainly can also prevent you from getting influenza and other respiratory viruses. So even a cloth mask is better than nothing. They're not good when there's a high level of circulation of very infectious pathogens such as Omicron, but um, they are certainly have their purpose and I think can be some kind of a step down, if you will, um, when you have less virus circulating. Uh, Governor Newsom uh, has signed an executive order updating Cal OSHA's uh, COVID-19 emergency temporary standard. Uh, so starting today, masks no longer required for unvaccinated workers indoors. That's consistent with the updated California Department of Public Health guidance. It is still strongly recommended for all individuals in most indoor settings. Employers must still provide a face covering upon request of an employee. The order also extends the current emergency temporary standard through May 5th of this year to ensure that Cal OSHA uh, and its standards board has time to review new guidance in anticipation of uh, the upcoming emergency temporary standard. So, Dr. Schreiner, it, it sounds Sounds like you know businesses uh, can tell employees, should they choose to do so, that they do not have to mask indoors, but that employees would still be free to wear a mask. We here at at KPCC are keeping our mask requirement in place despite the change uh, in the state. We got an email from our uh, human resources department today. Your thoughts on on what the best practice would be for those working indoors. I think that we we have to be flexible. This is the test of, uh, again, those layers of immunity that we've established over the last several months with vaccination and with COVID. You know, I, I would say for unvaccinated individuals, those folks are still at very, very high risk for serious illness and, frankly, death. And we know we know that the vaccines prevent that. Uh, we saw it. We've seen it over and over again during the Delta surge, certainly during the Omicron surge. And it's just such a tragedy when people die from a disease that was totally preventable, uh, which we had, sadly, some during this last surge at our own facility. So unvaccinated individuals are at very high risk. If I were unvaccinated, I would wear a mask when I was around other people. We also know that vaccinated people, fully vaccinated people, can carry the virus. So unvaccinated people are just at very, very high risk. The virus is looking for um, a non-immune host. And it, you know, we, Omicron is still there, it's still out there. Uh, it could certainly find an individual. So I think personal choice, if you are unvaccinated, you should really be thinking about wearing a mask when you're indoors with people that you don't know. Uh, for employers, again, it's their choice. And I think this will be the test, again, of the vaccine and also the, the ability of the, the amount of virus that's circulating in the community. You know, I think masks are a very, very important part of our uh, society now. And I was somebody who used to criticize people when I'd see them wearing a mask and getting on an airplane. I will never fly again without a mask. I will probably wear a mask every time I go into the supermarket uh, because it protects me from other infectious diseases uh, and it protects individuals that I encounter from anything that I may be carrying. I work at a hospital, so you know I could potentially have something. And so I think that it's it's a part of our, it should sort of be part of our wardrobe, if you will. 
Uh, and so uh, this will be particularly important in a seasonal sense. In the wintertime when we gather together, when we're traveling at the holiday time, that's the time to be wearing a mask so that you don't bring something into the home that you're visiting or to your family and friends. And you see that around the world in, in societies, and sometimes there's mandates for masks in uh, the wintertime. You know, COVID is a little more unpredictable in terms of its seasonality, but if we start seeing a surge, time to put on the masks. It should just be part of your wardrobe, just like you put, you know, carry a purse or put your wallet in your pocket or you put on your pants. Uh, a mask is a protective device to keep you safe uh, during times when there's viruses circulating. So I think okay. we all know how to do this. We all have been, been you know, highly experienced with this now. And I hope that everybody understands if I choose to wear a mask when I go to the grocery store, that's my choice. And be respectful of that, just like I will be respectful of somebody if they choose not to do that. Annie in Irvine says, I went to visit a friend who's in the hospital. I walked in wearing an N95 mask, but I was asked to take that off and to wear a surgical mask provided by the hospital. Annie was wondering why they would do that. I don't know why they would do that. Um, uh, it, it, sometimes it depends on, you know, we don't know how long, that, how old that N95 is. N95s that have been used and used and used certainly lose some of their uh, power, um, and they probably wanted the person to have a fresh mask. Uh, during the worst of the surge, we were providing N95s to all of our visitors uh, in the hospital. Most of the hospitals now are letting visitors come in, as we are as well, and uh, now we, we still require masking. Uh, KN95s are very effective. We provide those uh, for our um, uh, certainly for our staff and for visitors if they'd like one, uh, but we do require at least a surgical mask. So as again, as the amount of virus decreases in the community, we're opening hospitals up for visitors. Very, very important to have family members there to support uh, their their families who are inpatients. Um, and uh, as that happens, then the masking severity of masking requirements goes down. Uh, we have Matt in Hollywood emailed us, given that as long as there continue to be unvaccinated populations around the world and there is no guarantee the more lethal variants won't emerge down the road, how effective would annual boosters actually be? Well, that's a very good question, Matt, and that's that's kind of the $64 million question. We don't, we don't quite know um, how we do the boosting. We're learning and you can see with some of the early studies with the, the very young children, uh, the fact that the FDA has been having some problems um, with the dosing regimens for very young children, um, that without a booster, full protection is probably not provided. We also are learning that we might want to space out how we do the boosting. We, in the early days, we did the Pfizer between the first and second dose was three weeks. Moderna was four weeks. Looks like maybe we want to stretch that out a little bit, especially in individuals that are at high risk for some very, very rare side effects from the vaccines like myocarditis. Uh, the, the final, the third booster, that may be the thing that really locks in your immunity. That certainly seems to have been the case in the presence of Omicron. The one sort of good thing that happened was is that we could, we could evaluate the efficacy of boosting with the Omicron variant. People that were boosted did much, much better than people that had two shots but hadn't yet received their booster. Those folks still got pretty sick and some needed to be hospitalized. So I think we're learning how to use these vaccines. The vaccines may change in terms of what they direct them to. Uh, perhaps we can come up with a much-desired pan-coronavirus vaccine. That's several years away. But I think the booster vaccine that may or may not emerge uh, in the summer and fall maybe a combination of some of the variants uh, that we've had to try to kind of cover the bases uh, for what you might be exposed to. Does that drive the emergence of new variants trying to avoid the, the booster? Yes, that's a selective pressure on the virus to try to get around it. 
But at a certain point, the virus is just going to bump into somebody, well, that person had COVID and that person's fully vaccinated and that person, you know, um, was vaccinated and had COVID. So they're like, have super new antibodies. And so I think it's, we just don't know yet how we're going to kind of maneuver that, but we're getting that knowledge each day. All right. Uh, Christina in Eagle Rock asks, are the relaxed mask mandates going to lead to a repeat of last year when after masks went off, cases increased, Omicron emerged? Uh, are there indicators things will be different this time? That's another really important question, and, and this will be the test. Um, the difference between now and last year is that many, many more people are fully vaccinated, fully including a booster. So again, the the immunity of the community kind of rhymes there uh, is much much better than it was when we first uh, abandoned masks when we had that sort of brief moment of delusion that we thought the pandemic was over. Um, you know, I think that it's very clear that this thing is not going to go away quickly. Um, but um, the world is in a much better place now because of the immunologic experience we've had with the virus, and so I anticipate that we certainly could have an uptick in cases, and it is possible that another variant could emerge that would really take off. That's something we're going to have to watch carefully. Again, genomic testing and epidemiologic surveillance is going to be really important, Um, but uh, I do think that this time is much different than last time, and so hopefully we'll be able to navigate this without too much trouble. In just a couple minutes, we're going to open up the phones because I want to hear from parents your thoughts about the potential of the school where your child attends doing away with its indoor mask requirement. As you probably heard, the state of California and now Los Angeles County is, has uh, dovetailed with that, is removing the requirement for indoor masking at schools in about two weeks. Now, now, school districts are still going to be able to continue a masking requirement. For example, LA Unified has mentioned it's not planning, at least at this point, to make any change in two weeks. That could change in the inter- intervening days, but at least for now, they're going to keep their mandate in place. Other districts are considering what they're going to do, given the new uh, state and Los Angeles County uh, guidance here. But I'd like to hear from you as a parent what you would like to see your school do. And for what reasons you'd like to either see the requirement for masks to go or to see it stay in place. Maybe uh, it's a nuanced view. Maybe you don't think there needs to be a requirement, but you would still want your child to mask, for example, because maybe there's someone at home who's vulnerable. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. 866-893-KPCC. I want to talk with you. Let's start with Rachel in Lakeview Terrace in the San Fernando Valley. And I understand you're you're both a, a parent and a high school teacher, Rachel. So what do you think? Um, well, as a high school teacher, um, I, I think the students have done a really, really good job of dealing with the masking mandate, of wearing their masks. Um, And ultimately, as the parent of a child under five who can't be vaccinated, it does concern me uh, because we don't have a vaccine mandate for older students. um, And I just don't see why we can't wait a little bit longer as masking is being repealed around the county to see what the effects are before we start um, doing the same thing in our schools. And how long would you ideally wait? I mean, we're seeing a fairly precipitous drop in hospitalizations from COVID-19 right now. What what would be your benchmark for removing the mandate? 
ultimately, I think at least a month instead of two weeks, because we've seen huge swings in the past happen within just two weeks. Um, I think at least a month would give us a little bit more perspective. And I'm on the cautious side. I would be happy if we just wait to the end of the semester. Let that time and space uh, happen so that, you know, even over summer, hopefully things will continue to get better. Um, I'm just of the, the opinion that it's, it's good to be patient, um, even though we have been for a long time coming. Rachel, thank you so much. And I love that we start with you both as a high school teacher and a parent of a child under the age of five to get your perspective. Uh, thank you so much. 866-893-KPECC. Dr. Schreiner, your, your thoughts about Rachel saying, well, why not you know, wait at least a month or maybe till the end of the semester? Well, I think Rachel brought up some excellent points, and, and what an astute listener. I think that, um, you know, there is a lot of concern about um, uh, our vulnerable populations, children under five who are completely unvaccinated, many children between five and 11 who are not fully vaccinated and may not have responded very well to the vaccine, and then even some older young adults that um, have different sort of levels of response. And I think she brings up some very important points that that, those are the populations, our vulnerable populations in the country, and that's not even including the 3% of our population that are immunosuppressed, where we have to be very, very careful. And so when when we make these sort of sweeping generalizations about removing masks, that those populations are ones that sort of get swept along but could be really have some significant disease. And so I think her point is very well taken. And I I would concur with her. It's nicer to wait a little bit and see where we go. She's absolutely right that we had a big surge or beginning of the the beta surge, um, uh, excuse me, the alpha surge last year when we took masks off. So I'm I'm in her boat in terms of being more cautious, but there's a lot of forces sort of driving this. Um, The other piece of it is as we move forward, Right now, we're very close to the Omicron surge, and so there's a lot of immunity out there because many, many people had it. As we move farther away from that, oh, good point. masked, is that actually putting our population at risk as we get farther away from the immunity? That- I hadn't thought about that. That's, that's an excellent point, though. Christy and Playa Vista, what do you want to see LAUSD do? I would like to see LUSD align with the L.A. Department of Public Health and CDC on guidelines. Most other states and progressive countries have already lifted their mask mandates. So there's an abundance of data on this. And you have a six year old, I understand. Yes, um, I have a six year old and early education is about phonics, socialization, reading and communication and nonverbal cues, all of which are impeded by long-term mask mandates and excessive mitigation. My fully vaccinated six-year-old thinks he would go to jail if his mask dips below his nose. Our kids desperately need a return to normalcy, and one-way masking is very effective for those that still need extra protection. Christy, I appreciate your call. Thank you so much. Um, I'm glad you raised, Christy, the one-way masking thing, because that's a question we've gotten a lot even outside of the schools is, well, if people stop wearing their masks, but I choose to still wear one, how protected am I? Dr. Schreiner? One-way masking is pretty protective, and I think Christy's point is a good one, too. You know, we do have to take the leap sometimes. Um, it's just it's a matter, is this the right time or not? And we're just going to find out. It's uh, As this happens, We'll see what happens. Um, some of the countries that have unmasked, uh, it's very early to tell whether there's going to be a surge. Again, there's so much immunity out there right now that this may not be the, the best way to assess it. But 
I can understand why we have to do it. One-way masking is protective. It's better if both parties are masked to fully protect, especially a vulnerable individual. Uh, but um, it certainly can help, and uh, it adds a level of security for a parent if they want to keep their child a little bit more protected and right. transition out. Uh, let's see. Susan in Pasadena says, I'm parent of a kindergartner. I want to see masks stay in place, not just because of COVID. My kid's only been sick one time in the last year. I attribute that to wearing masks. In their first year of preschool, they had uh, pneumonia twice, along with other bad colds. I think we should keep them in place, at least until the numbers go down even more. Joel, in the West Adams District of L.A., you have two kids in L.A. Unified? I do, Larry. I've got a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old. Very good. And what do you want to see the district do? Well, personally, I believe in the science. We are vaxxed and boosted, and I want to see the district allow the kids to take their masks off. The science is beyond clear, the damage that these masks are doing to their social, emotional, and academic development. And I don't think that the doctor today or that the previous caller, Rachel, even addresses those risks given the very insignificant risks on the other side of the table. Joel, what, uh, just to be, I'm sorry to interrupt, but to be specific, what are the ways that you think your two kids have been harmed to this point by wearing masks inside? I can tell you that the ability for any kids not to see the, um, the, the smile or the frown or the expression on their friends' faces as they're talking to them has impeded children's ability to get social and emotional cues as they're communicating. My kids are older, so the whole issue about phonics, which is a very real issue, isn't so much uh, relevant to my kids. But from a social and emotional issue, my kids have said to me, Dad, I didn't know so-and-so was mad at me. I said, well, didn't you get it, that they were kind of upset with what you said? They said, no, I couldn't see their mouth. But had I been able to see their mouth, I think I would have understood that they responded to what I said in a bad way. These are big things. But for the younger children, it's even more important. Joel, I really appreciate your call. Thank you so much. 866-893-KPECC. Stephanie in Calabasas says, I want the vaccinated kids not to have to wear a mask, but kids who are unvaccinated to continue wearing them, just like the guidelines that are starting to exist in restaurants and other indoor spaces. Dr. Schreiner, uh, can the schools, though, ask about vaccination and can they make different rules on that, or is, is that a privacy issue? Well, the schools can make the rules that they want to make. Usually, I mean, obviously, if it's a public school, it's within the district. Private schools can do, um, you know, have their own set of requirements. So um, uh, with children, they have to have permission from the parent. Um, but uh, that is certainly something that they, they can do, and they, ha- they have the ability to do that. I don't think we're going to see too much of that. And you can see just from all of your different listeners, Larry, how complex this is. Oh, yeah. And, and all of these are important and excellent points. No one's wrong in what they're saying. Not at all. This is a very hard thing to do, and we're not, we don't know how this is going to play out. And, and so we want to try it. I think it's reasonable to take a step. It's just we need to be careful and be also be willing to go backwards if we start seeing an uptick in disease. Shauna emailed us, and a reminder, please include your location along with your first name. Shauna says, I'm a social worker married to a nurse. We've been advocating for months to have mask-optional school settings. We have two kiddos of four who've been greatly impacted by masking. Children are low risk, and vaccines have been available for adults for some time. COVID is endemic. Children need normalcy now, and we are a 
immensely grateful for the leadership in our local community school in Redondo Beach, who swiftly aligned with allowing mask removal starting March 12th. Thank you so much, Shauna. Appreciate it. Um, Teresa tweets at AirTalk. Again, please include your location. As a parent of two elementary school kids in LA Unified, I believe it's premature to remove masking indoors and weekly testing for that matter. We only have 26% of 5 to 11-year-olds vaccinated in L.A. County and no option for the 0 to 4-year-olds. Protect our kids and our teachers along with families. That's Teresa tweeting at AirTalk. We have another Teresa. (laughs) Again, I don't know her location either. It says, we are so grateful to have the mask mandate lifted. My children had poor outcomes with the masks, bacterial infections, pimples, headaches, etc. 866-893-KPECC. Allison, in Culver City, uh, what do you want to see your local district do? Hi, I have two kids in the high school, and Culver City has a vaccine mandate, and I would love to see the mask get lifted. I feel that kids who are worried can keep them on, but I think we also need to think ahead, and these kids have been masked for so long, and we want to be able to put masks on if there is a surge and be flexible and move with how the times are changing, and if we just keep the mask on without end in sight, like you're not teaching people what the disease is. It's going to go up. It's going to go down. We move with it. And I really think we need to think about that. Allison, appreciate your call. Thank you so much. Aaron, joining us from Monterey Park, you're on Air Talk. Hi, Larry. Um, yeah, I have mixed feelings. I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old um, in the Alhambra Unified School District. They both have um, autism spectrum disorder. They've been diagnosed. The seven-year-old is really good about wearing masks. But my five-year-old, after two years, has started to really rebel. And unfortunately, my husband and I made the mistake of telling him back in November, you know, you get vaccinated and you'll be able to take off your mask soon. And then, of course, we had the, because then Omicron came. And so it, it actually has become a disciplinary issue at school and it has been noted in his IEP. So I think if they remove the mask mandate at our school, I, I would let him go without a mask. To wear one, I'd be okay with that too. Yeah, and you cut out just a little bit, and you said you'd be okay with your seven-year-old continuing to wear it, though. Well, she said something recently about she likes the the layer of protection, so I I wouldn't tell her not to. I could see the benefit, but I really would love to be done with the battle with my five-year-old. Yeah, understandably, Erin, and what you told your child, I think so many people thought, yes, we'll get vaccinated. That'll largely uh, drive COVID-19 into a, such a low level that, you know, we won't have to be be doing the masking anymore. Tammy, in Mid-City, Los Angeles, understand you're an elementary school teacher. What do you think your district should do? Um, I think we should continue the masking. Um, as someone said earlier, um, my school in particular is only 30 percent um, vaccinated. So that'll leave me facing, you know, anywhere from 20 to 22 kids who are not most of who are not vaccinated. Um, I have an elderly mother at home. So, you know, the chance of me taking something home to her, um, it's just too much. I mean, I understand the parents are fed up. I don't think it's a natural state for little kids to have to wear masks, but until the numbers are, to me, satisfactory, it just feels too early, too soon. And Tammy, you raise an important point about, you know, having someone in your household who might be vulnerable to COVID-19. And I think, you know, a lot of 
a lot of parents who are in the position or or um, employees of school districts who are in the position that you described. Dr. Schreiner, um, we, we hear that at schools, there really haven't been very many outbreaks or spread at school that often it's, you know, it's been from the community where it's spread and then kids arrive at school and test positive. But I wonder, you know, what are the risks of someone in Tammy's position, uh, a child in her class, um, potentially exposing her and then, you know, she would take it home? Well, they're not zero. And again, that's why we have to, when we're trying to make these really tough decisions, we have to think about all the different communities that are impacted by this. And certainly our most vulnerable communities, very young children that aren't vaccinated, kids that are under-vaccinated, and uh, vulnerable adults, of which there's a, you know, a large portion of the American public is immunocompromised in some fashion, that those individuals, if they get COVID, could have a very bad outcome. So, um, you know, again, there, you're absolutely right that there hasn't been quite as much transmission uh, in in uh, the K through 12 schools as we thought there might have been, and, and I think that's because of of attention to mitigation techniques such as social distancing and masking. The kids are outdoors when they're playing and interacting with one another. A good ventilation in, in classrooms, hopefully. So those things can also decrease their transmission rate. But you can get it and you can bring it home to a vulnerable family member. And that is something to consider for your own decision. Uh, Obviously, you're wearing a mask when you're around people that might be able to transmit it to you. Evelyn uh, called Say I Coach at a public high school. We are not allowed to ask the players if they're vaccinated or to tell them to get it, but we can encourage it. Um, Param in Chatsworth says, I have a three-year-old preschooler, doesn't mind wearing a mask at all. The school's really safe about it. He's not vaccine eligible yet, so I'm nervous about um, this with uh, mask restrictions being removed. Eric in Pomona tweets at AirTalk, my wife is a third grade teacher in Orange County and has been uh, reluctant um, to see the mask guidance removed because many of her parents have elected not to vaccinate their children in her class. She feels she has an obligation to protect her students if parents aren't willing to. And we have Rich who emailed us uh, from Santa Clara County. I'm a parent of three daughters, eight, six, and four years years of age, although I'm glad the state's lifted the mask mandate, I believe it's at least a year late. And unfortunately, I live in Santa Clara County, where we've been stricter than Governor Newsom. So I'll not be shocked if she keeps the mask mandate for school children beyond the 14th of March, but I will be hugely disappointed. That's Rich in Santa Clara County. Amy in Torrance says, I'm the parent of a first grader and a one-year-old. I prefer the masks stay on indoors since I have a little one at home that can't be vaccinated yet. And Ruth and Brea emailed us, I disagree with the new masking rules. My daughter's in junior high, fully vaxxed and boosted. We're considering homeschooling. Classrooms are a virus's dream. Overcrowded rooms with poor air circulation. Let's protect these children's future physical health. I do know that some districts have actually invested a lot because they got all that extra money from the state into improving air circulation and adding uh, HEPA filters and the like to classrooms. So, Maybe that's something good that stays in in many of these schools is uh, better air purification going forward. Dr. Schreiner, thank you so much for being with us as always. We appreciate it so much. It's my pleasure, Larry. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAist.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle.
This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.